Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is August the 11th, 2016. This is episode 1847 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Thursday, and it means it's a listener call show. And i got to tell you, these are some of my favorite uh, shows. They really are. I, I love the listener call shows because not only is it a call, that it, a show that's made by the audience, but by hearing the calls, I get to actually hear you guys. I know a lot of you guys through uh, emails and social media and stuff like that, but actually getting to hear somebody is uh, is a kind of a different level of communications. If not, you know, a phone would not be a popular thing even today, especially today. Think about it. I guess we do call people less today, don't we, than we, than we did in the past. Uh, with text messaging uh, being so readily available, when cell phones were uh, first made somewhat affordable and everybody got one, you know, people actually I think used the phone more, not less, to to make actual calls. I think today maybe they they use the phone less than we did uh, even in the days of landline to actually make phone calls. I digress though. Anyway, what are we going to talk about today? What are your calls about? Uh, one, uh, we have a question on uh, shooting deer with an old shotgun. Single shot belonged to the man's uh, father or grandfather. I don't remember. We'll hear the call, and then that will remind me which one it was. But uh, selecting ammo to actually shoot a deer close range uh, for that shotgun. Some thoughts on that. And uh, a call about weapons usage, and specifically edged weapons. And I'm going to, because uh, the call's not really a question, I'm going to talk about it from the angle of the mentality of weapon usage, especially non-firearms weapons. And, and, and something that goes unsaid in most weapons training that if your weapon is to be effective needs to be the first thing that you're actually thinking of about the usage of a weapon um, next I have a listener called in about a sharpener and I've said before with knife sharpeners all these electric kitchen knife sharpeners and stuff they're all garbage I, I've, I've tried several different kinds they ruin knives or they fail to sharpen knives or they do both well um, he's got a sharpener he bought he's happy with and I've heard that before, and then I've looked at sharpeners and went, yeah, no, I don't think so. I looked at this one and went, you know what? That probably works so much so I've actually ordered one, and I'll talk about why I think it'll work, but I won't give it my endorsement until I get it in my hands and try it out. Uh, question about aquaponics and learning more about that we'll talk about. Uh, thoughts for the new prepper dad. So already a prepper, about to be a new dad. What do you? What what, what skills to develop? I'm going to answer this question in a way that people are going to go, yeah, that makes sense, but it's not what I thought he would say. Um, and then when is there's a lot of gun stuff today, but you know it's just the way it works out sometimes. When is a shot unsafe for the shooter himself? Uh, interesting setup here, and I'm going to shortcut that one a little bit and say the shooter made the right choice in not taking that shot. It ain't worth it over a groundhog. And then another uh, sort of gun question, a hunting question, hunting birds without a dog. I'm going to talk about the good and bad of that. You can certainly do it. We'll talk about that and a little bit of some other stuff today in just a bit. Before we do, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, guys, if you're like me, you want the best quality water for yourself and your family. This is why I've used a Berkey water filter for over six years in my own home. But if you're going to get a Berkey or parts for one you already have, you should deal with the best. And that's Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason. There's only one official Berkey guy, and you can only find him at his website at directive21.com. Again, directive, the number's 21, and a dot com. Let me ask you a question. 
Do you have a favorite knife, a special knife, one you may hand down to a son or a daughter? How cool would it be if you had such a knife that you actually made yourself? With KnifeKits.com as your partner, you can do it. Check out the hundreds of options they have along with all the help you would need from books and DVDs to develop the skill of knife making. You can learn more at KnifeKits.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1847, because the episode is 1847. Alex Shrugged has three for us today. Before I get into that, though, I, I forgot to mention yesterday, everybody, we should uh, wish Alex and uh, Mrs. Alex Shrugged a happy anniversary belated. Yesterday was their wedding anniversary. He mentioned that in an email to me, and I forgot to mention that on the air. I really appreciate Alex's contributions to the Survival Podcast community. And uh, definitely a happy anniversary to Alex and Mrs. Alex Shrugged. Anyway, uh, we have today the Wicked War and Manifest Destiny. We have the Germans have landed in Texas. We have All is Well in the Utah Territory. And in other news, the first chocolate bar is created this year. Thank God. Um, production begins on the Neko Wafer Candy. Now, many of you are going, I don't know what the Neko Wafer Candy is. If you're over 40, I almost guarantee you do. And if you're over 20, you probably do. These things, I loved them when I was a kid. They almost look like a thin antacid. And they kind of have the same consistency, but they taste better. And, and now you, you're going, oh, yeah, those things. They come in a tube and you know, the little thin, wafer-thin uh, candies. I used to love those things when I was a kid. And then peanut brittle is invented this year, or maybe not. What Alex says is candy makers will stumble upon or accidentally create... Several candy confections over the next few years. The explanations will all sound like stories from someone's crazy uncle would tell how he invented the Enchirito for Taco Bell. You wouldn't have believed it. Uh, yeah. Peanut brittle will be a pretty easy thing to invent by accident, though, when you pretty much caramelize sugar and pour it on peanuts. Uh, so that sounds like something somebody would do the first time, likely by some sort of accident uh, in the kitchen. Anyway, I'm going to read The Wicked War and Manifest Destiny because it's certainly a historical thing that we can still learn from today. Mexico City has fallen to U.S. forces under the command of Winfield Scott as Mexican-American War draws to a close. Santa Ana has been defeated again and has been an ugly business, a wicked war, because it didn't have to happen. Few leaders wanted it. Henry Clay tried to ignore it, but war was a certain, had a certain momentum, a manifest destiny, as they put it. It started over the annexation of Texas by the United States and a fear that Mexico would retaliate. Troops were sent under the command of old rough and ready Tyler, um, Taylor, I'm sorry, uh, the future president, Zachary Taylor. And a real dis the real dispute was over a strip of land between the Nueces River and the Rio Grande. When hostile troops are within shouting distance from each other, bad things happen. War was declared as fast as you could say, Bob's your uncle. Thousands lie dead on the field of battle, and U.S. Marines are marching into the halls of Montezuma by early next year. Solemn oaths will be declared, treaties will be signed, and Mexico will become a lot smaller. Quote, I do not think there was ever a more wicked war than that waged by the United States on Mexico. I thought so at the time when I was a youngster, only I had not the moral courage enough to resign. Ulysses S. Grant speaking in 1879. My take by Alex Shrugged. Okay, Manifest Destiny is a phrase coined in 1845 as an argument in favor of annexing Texas, but it became a popular idea only long after the Mexican-American War was over. Manifest destiny originally meant the next step was obviously provided by Providence, which meant it was okay to take Texas and Mexico because it was all part of God's plan. 
In later years, Manifest Destiny became something like, if I can beat you up and take all your stuff, it is because I was meant to beat you up and take all your stuff. In contrast, I believe in using the general principles to inform my actions. So even though it seems manifestly obvious that Alaska and Washington State should meet somewhere along the Pacific Coast, I will not force a war with Canada simply to make that happen. My principles won't allow it. The Canadians are safe around me. Did the Mexican-American War have to happen? No, Texas was long gone. California would have broken away in any case. Mexico was too weak to hold those territories. Indeed. Um, I would tell you that the concept of manifest destiny, though we don't call it that, are still with us today and are used to uh, push this nation into war time and time again when maybe we shouldn't go to war. And it's done through a, a little bit different mechanism today, but the, the psychology is the same. If you're against a war, you're against your country which is a preposterous thing. I love Alex's analogy because it, it leads me to several of my own. Let's say that we decided one day that Alaska and Washington should touch just because, well, you know, Americans, we should not have to drive through a foreign country to get to a state of our own. We should It shouldn't be landlocked. And we, we entered into negotiations with Canada to, uh, to have a little sliver of land along the Pacific coast Uh, where a highway could go through and we could not have to go through any border crossings, whatever. And not many people live there anyway. And the ones that do, they can either become American citizens or we'll pay the relocation fees. And we try to be perfectly reasonable about it. And Canada says, nope, not happening. Get the hell out of here. We're keeping our maple syrup. You don't get any. You don't get any Canadian beer. We're pissed off at you. You don't get any Canadian bacon either. Take your ass out of Canada now. Don't mess with us. And they put a bunch of Mounties in that little place. And the U.S., Canada, we make fun of sometimes, but Canada has a pretty formidable military, but compared to the United States, I mean, if the United States decided they wanted that land, we could take it. We could take the whole damn Canadian country if we wanted to. Not that we would. But let's say that some berserk idiot in D.C. running the country decides we need that piece of land and we should kick their ass until they give it to us. And you see this on your news. Are you going to support that war? I'm letting it be silent for a second so you can realize how stupid it would be to do so. Okay. I'm going to tell you that the sophistication and media apparatus used on the American people is sufficient that they probably could convince enough people in this country to support that if they really wanted to do it. But it would be a tough one. It would be a tough sell. Let's think of another one a little bit more in keeping with something that we might do, but still preposterous enough to make my point. Situation in Venezuela right now is pretty bad, and the Venezuelan government's not really a friend of the United States and hasn't been for quite a long time. Uh, they are definitely deeply socialist to the point where you might even call them communist. People are starving. Uh, the economic system in Venezuela has fallen on its ass and failed. And people are actually being forced by the government to go work in the fields now to try to provide enough food to keep the country on its feet. Let's say the current or future ass clown in chief in D.C., we call that person the president, decides that we should inv invade Venezuela um, and establish a true democratic government and provide them aid. And the reason we need to invade them is the United States has offered aid under certain conditions to ensure that it is uh, fairly distributed to the people of Venezuela. Uh, it's not used, it's not abused, and that uh, the certain atrocities that are happening against Venezuelan subjects, like being forced to work at gunpoint, are ceased. And Venezuela has refused to accept aid under those conditions, and therefore to help the Venezuelan people, we need to invade Venezuela. Are you going to support that war? Are you going to realize the futile, futile stupidity of it at any point? 
Are you going to realize that the majority of people in Venezuela chose socialism and say, Venezuela presents no present danger to the United States whatsoever. This is a dumb thing. I'm not supporting it. Does that make you unpatriotic and a bad American? See, the new face of Manifest Destiny is only the United States can. That's, that's the new state. That's the new face of Manifest Destiny. We are the only ones strong enough to, to liberate the American people. We are the only ones strong enough to ensure that Alaskans can drive to the United States without going through a border crossing. Yes, those seem ridiculous, but the Venezuelan one is not far off of other shit we've done. But just today we might not do it because today our government is so embracing the concept of socialism that I don't call it that. So, so they might have to come up with a different concept behind it. But these are things we've done, and this is how we've done it, and we've done it by creating this dichotomy. You're either for us or against us. As though no one could be for their country and opposed to their country prosecuting a war. It's preposterous on its face. Just my thoughts. Manifest Destiny is still with us under the dichotomy of patriotism versus anti-American. It's interesting that Ulysses Grant, who ended up being the uh, general over the Union troops, even says how atrocious this war was. I think there's a real simple way to make a general anti-war, and that is to have a general experience war, and then have the general retire, take off his uniform, and wait a week, and you'll end up with an anti-war prior service general. It's, it usually takes about that long. Dwight Eisenhower also springs to mind. And with that, let's take your first call of the day. Jack, Brian in Delaware and an MSD member. My question is, what would your suggestion be for shooting a slug, modern-day slug, in a non-rifled barrel? Details. I recently had one of my granddad's shotguns uh, refinished at the local gunsmith. It's an old single-shot 12-gauge Stevenson with a little ball for a sight. I uh, was pretty beat up, had a broken stock. I got it all uh, re-blued, new stock put on it, came out real nice. I paid about $100 more than what I could buy it for today, but that's okay with my granddad. Um, I have a dedicated slug gun. I've got an H&R slugger, so I'm not looking for something I would shoot all the time, but this season I would like to shoot a deer with it uh, just for novelty's sake because it was my granddad's. I have a place where I can hunt where I can get 25 to 50-yard shots in the field uh, on the edge of the tree line all day long with no cover. Um, and I was debating on whether I should shoot buckshot or just your old-school, you know, mushroom-looking slug like I grew up on in the 80s um, and or how a modern-day sable round would perform down that barrel. I do not know what the choke is. It's not listed anywhere on the gun. Uh, if it's, you know, just a straight cylinder all the way down or if it's improved or modified. So just your thoughts. Um, I want to shoot a deer with it. It's no cover. What would you suggest? Buckshot, old school slug, or play around with some modern saber around um, and see what they would do. Uh, that's it. Thanks for the show. I uh, love the work. And uh, be safe. The short answer a Foster-style slug is what you want to use. Foster slugs are the old-school slugs. They were invented in the 30s, um, basically uh, by a guy that wanted to allow uh, hunters uh, that needed deer meat to be able to shoot deer with a shotgun because almost everybody had a shotgun, and not everybody could afford a rifle or even rifle ammunition during the Depression. 
the Foster style slug. Uh, it was invented by again a, a dude named Foster. That was the guy that did it, and they were designed to be shot, of course, through a smooth bore shotgun. I mean, if you know, that's what people had. That's was you know everybody had one, probably very similar to the one that uh, you have yourself there. Now, here's the reality. If I were a betting man, and I'm not, but if I were, I would lay about 100 to 1 odds that the choke on your gun is either modified or full. It is almost inevitably the case that in a single-shot shotgun, especially from the time period you're talking about, it is either going to be a, a, a fixed full or a fixed uh, modified. That's, that's your two choices. Of those two, it would be much better if it were modified than full. However, you can shoot Foster-style slugs through a full-choke shotgun. It, it will work. Accuracy suffers. The absolute best-case scenario is you have a cylinder or improved cylinder choke. I'm going to say something a lot of shotgun gunners will disagree with, but I personally feel that the improved cylinder choke is the most versatile all-around choke. If I had to pick a single choke to have on a shotgun, it would be improved cylinder. You can take and do whatever you want with that information where a lot of people would feel modified because it's a little bit tighter. So if we think about, just for people that maybe don't know all this stuff, a choke of a shotgun is simply the constriction at the end of the barrel. The barrel of a shotgun is just basically a pipe. Think of it as a pipe. But it's not a straight pipe. It's a tapered pipe. And it tapers to the end, and at the end it has its greatest point of constriction. So it's like a, a cone. It's just a very long cone with not a lot of taper, right? And the tighter that hole is where the where the, the shot actually comes out, a little plastic cup will come out when we're shooting regular bird shot. And inside that little plastic cup or wadding is another thing that's called, is a whole bunch of BBs. And the tighter that hole is, the tighter the pattern is, and therefore the more dense the pattern, and generally speaking, the longer the shot you can take on appropriate game. That's why you'd have a tighter choke. The problem lies in that with a shotgun, you want a certain amount of spread. That's how you can knock a bird down out of the air with a shotgun when maybe the same shooter could never do so with a rifle. You've got that, that spread that comes out. And if we're hunting something like, oh, I don't know, quail over dogs, and uh, we have a full choke 12-gauge, and uh, a you know, dog jumps a quail, and we shoot that quail with a full choke at, let's say, oh, I don't know, like 15 yards over the dog... Um, well, then we make quail into quail. So chokes are adjusted based on the, the needs in the field. And the ch close shooting issue can be solved many times with, with bird hunting by simply allowing the bird to get a little bit further out before you take the shot, right? And, and, and so modified works well for that. But I've knocked doves down at 40 yards with an improved cylinder. Um, so I'm just saying I think that overall it gives you the greatest flexibility. It also is the choke that is considered by manufacturers of Foster-style slugs to be the most accurate choke to shoot slugs in. And uh, I grew up shooting mostly a Remington 870 and 12-gauge and uh, improved cylinder choke. And I shot quite a few deer with Foster-style slugs in it. And it was uh, surprisingly accurate out to about 35 yards-ish, maybe a little further. But that was about the end of where that kind of big old pumpkin balls, another thing we used to call them, uh, was, was accurate too. So with your ranges, there's probably no harm because it sounds like what you want to do is go out kind of as a tribute you know, to this, this heirloom and take at least one deer with it. 
And I would say, you know, put a couple rounds through it, make sure it hits where you think it hits, so you do the responsible thing. But you, a Foster slug out of a 12 gauge is about a 75 caliber, one and a half ounce or one and a quarter ounce piece of lead. Um, if you hit a deer in the vitals with that thing, it dies and it dies really fast. They are amazingly efficient. It's all about accuracy. The concern. Firing many shots of a Foster-style slug through a full choke can in time kind of shoot out the choke a bit. It's really a bit too much constriction for it, but it can be done a time or two. Uh, certainly, it's safe. It's just you may do, you know, long-term repetitive, you may do some damage to the gun. Um, I would tell you it's a good idea for you to know what choke your gun is, and I'll tell you there's two different ways to do it. The gunsmith way is you can get yourself a caliper, and you can caliper the inside of the end of the barrel, and then you can look up that caliber spec, and uh, that will tell you what choke you have. Because there's, And you can just look that up on Google, because um, it's a standardized thing, and there might be a few thousandths of an inch here or there tolerance between manufacturers, but you, you kind of find a range. Now, here's the redneck, simple, easy way. Get yourself a piece of cardboard and cut yourself a triangular-shaped wedge down to a fine point and up to maybe, you know, an inch and a half wide. Go find yourself a shotgun that has a choke on it that's marked or a screw-in choke tube that's marked and take your little cone and make sure, obviously, it's unloaded and safe. Put your little cone, piece of cardboard in there, and take a Sharpie marker and mark on both sides a little hash mark of how far that little, little thing goes into the end of the barrel. And then if it's modified, write a little M in there. And then go find yourself one that's full choke, stick it in there, and do the same thing, put a little F on there. If you can find one that's an improved cylinder, you can actually make yourself a little gauge card, and then you can check guns that are unmarked. That's a very unusual thing that it's unmarked, and it's making me think it's probably a full choke even more, though I can't tell you why I believe that. But then you can take that little wedge, put it in there, and you'll know what you have. And if it's not exactly the same, whichever one it's closer to is the one you have. I, I highly doubt there's a, a, a single-shot shotgun from that long ago with an improved modified choke, though it may be a full choke that's not quite full and fits in that improved modified. Your main choke, starting from your least restrictive to most restrictive, would be cylinder bore, improved cylinder, modified, improved modified, and full. Okay? So... That's how I would come at this, and I would certainly not hesitate to go out there and, and, and use it, you know, with a few slugs through it to test and, you know, with the kind of range you can get to take a deer with it. If it is a modified gun, uh, you can shoot slugs through it to your heart's content. It's still not going to be as good a gun to shoot slugs out of as an improved cylinder, but you're not going to damage the choke uh, it, it, at all. Even with the full thing, it takes a lot of shooting to damage uh, the choke. It really does. You have another option, though, if you really want to hunt with this gun more, including birds and stuff. If you'd like it to be modified or improved cylinder, for instance, uh, most gunsmiths could, could probably take care of that very, very easily for you. Um, rather than bore it out, the easiest solution would be, remember, it's tapered to this constriction point. It would probably only involve removing a uh, less than an inch of barrel length from it to move back and then kind of recrowning the muzzle to get to the spec that you're looking for and then braise that little bead back on the barrel. Most qualified gunsmiths could do that job for you very, very easily. Again, you'd be once again putting money into it. Uh, probably not as much as you spent already, but, you know, what the gun's worth yet again. But if you wanted it and you wanted it to be more practical for hunting, 
I would say that that would make a lot more sense than trying to have it retrofitted so you can put screw and chokes in it. And again, the choke I would go for is improved cylinder, but the all-around choke that most shotgunners will pick would be a modified if that was the only thing you could have. That's why you'll see most double barrels will have modified and full, or improved cylinder and modified will be the two that you'll see most commonly paired up in fixed double barrels. Today, everything they make has exchangeable chokes. Okay, I went long on that because I love guns. Anyway, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Uh, so the comment about the knife in the gunfight. Uh, yeah, one, I'd rather have a gun. But Modern Marvels did a bit on uh, the axe, a show about uh, about the axe. And they had they uh they highlighted a company that was making these tactical tomahawks for uh, soldiers in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. These soldiers were buying these things because when you're in a blade culture, and carrying a blade kind of commands respect from the people you're uh, patrolling. I guess that's more than I can think of. I don't know how true that is. I've never been in the military. I don't want to be in a knife fight. I'd rather have a gun. Obviously, I'd rather have a gun. But I just thought that was a little tidbit that I... You probably knew that already. But I just was thinking that, and I figured I'd share it. Thanks. On the whole Afghanistan thing, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's... uh when in Rome type thing, do as the Romans. So when in Afghanistan, do as the Afghans. I, I, I don't know anything about that. Um, this question, though, and the repeated responses I've gotten to my comments on the 21-foot rule, and uh, the real quick return on that is, if you have a gun and somebody comes running after you with a knife, you move. Okay? that You move and, and you take uh, defensive action as you move. You don't stand still. And that's that's what's left out of all these bullshit drills you see on YouTube as the guy stands there and just proves the guy with the knife can get to you. And that leads me to the other thing. Again, the whole concept of the guy with the knife wins because if he's within 21 feet, he can, he can get there first. Again, if I draw the gun first and I intend to kill you, I don't intend to arrest you because the guy with the knife is trying to kill you, right? If I intend to kill you and I'm calling the gun, I just pull it out and shoot you, you're, you're done. Even if you're going to go down, you're going to start coming now, you're already wounded, another shot, another shot, whatever it takes, you're going down, okay? Um, the, the, the concept is the problem there, and I think part of it is not understanding the mentality of using weapons in the first place. One of my favorite people, and I only ever heard him say it once, but I immediately resonated with him when I heard him say this, because it's how I was taught by my instructor when I was all the way back, you know, 11, 12 years old. And it's Doug Marcardi, it was the guy that said this in his video that made me resonate with him. And he was talking about a knife in particular, but he meant any weapon. He said, your knife is not meant to be seen, it's meant to be felt. This is the actual mentality of a weapon, whether it's a gun, whether it's uh, a small hammer, which this, I'm going to put some two videos in the show notes today. Uh, links in the show notes of McCarty using this little stubby hammer that you can buy for like three bucks from Harbor Freight in a, in a, as an amazing martial arts weapon. Whether it's a uh, an impact tool, whether it's a knife, whether it's some sort of an improvised weapon, the entire point is the the the, the point at which the person you're in combat with knows that you have a weapon should be 
the point at which the weapon has impacted or caused harm to them. And, and I believe that even includes a gun. Now, understand, I am not a law enforcement officer, and I'm not speaking to you as though you are, though many of you that listen are. I am speaking to you as a person who very much would like to stay alive, and if you try to kill me, I will use whatever force is necessary to preserve my life and the lives of those around me. And that means that if you draw a gun and my best weapon at hand is a knife, that I'm not going to pull out my knife and say, since I'm within 21 feet, I can run at you and stab you and kill you. Because even though I will get there and I probably will get to you, and I probably will stab you, and I probably will harm you, and I might even kill you, I'm going to get shot too. Okay? So, depending on where I am, what the critical distance is between us, whether I can break the critical distance reverse or forward, I might control your gun hand. And as I control your gun hand and, be, uh, and a fight over the weapon ensues, shooters tend to have a, an obsession with the gun. That, that I, got, I got to shoot him, I got to shoot him. Okay? And when there's any kind of question about that and you have control of the gun hand all focus goes to the gun hand which might leave a knife into the belly is a really easy thing to pull off compared to getting your own gun out depending on which hand where and how the whole situation goes down but this is the reality all of this training you see with with martial artists on youtube and wherever else you see it where like the guy has a knife and he's got the knife in his hand And then the, the instructor says, okay, try to stab me with the knife. And the guy takes the knife and tries to stab me. That's, that's not how actual combat happens. Or two guys have a knife and they're dueling or, or whatever. It's not that it's not useful training. It's just not how it happens. And it's not how it happens in actual like armed combat either. You mentioned the tomahawk. Those types of weapons were used, especially in the trenches of World War One. But it wasn't like when you see, you know, Uh, movies where like one guy jumps in a trench and like ah the guy picks the tomahawk up the other guy's got a shovel and they're like fighting it no the guy jumps in and tries to kill you and you happen to get there first when when we're in defensive situations what we want to look like is in control but yet attempting to defuse the conflict. And you do attempt to defuse the conflict so that if you have to use lethal force by any means, that you can live with yourself. And that if you're put in front of a jury, you can tell the truth and say, I, I did what I could, because that goes a long way toward getting cleared. People, when they're honest, tend to appear more honest. Okay, um, Not that some people can't lie effectively. But to me, if I ever take somebody's life, I know even if that person's a scumbag, that... They probably had a mother, a father, maybe a daughter or a son or a wife or, or what have you that's going to be without them forever because of what I did. So I have to do everything I can to, to minimize the potential for that. But if it comes down to it, my job isn't to fight fair. My job is if there's a weapon involved, for the first time that person knows the weapon's involved to be when the weapon is deployed and used. Because I'm not the one that's asking them to try to hurt me. I'm not the one that's asking them to try to kill me. I've got a wife to take care of. And if you kill me, I can't do that. And even with the, you know, I carry life insurance, but that can't do it the way that I can. 
Life insurance can't be there to make sure that the person outside the door is really supposed to be there. Life insurance can't make her feel better when she's sad, right? So if you're going to try to take me away from my wife or my son or my grandchildren or my daughter-in-law, then I will kill you back, and I'll make no apologies for it. But I'll do everything I can to avoid it, and in that avoidance comes the opportunity to deploy the weapon unseen. And so a, a weapon like a tomahawk, I mean, how do you do that? How do you keep that weapon unseen? You know? And I, I do want to say, because somebody will take this the wrong way, if there is a potential to diffuse the situation through exposing the fact that you have a weapon, then in some instances it makes very much sense to do that. I mentioned a story recently where a guy comes back to his car or his truck, whatever it was, parked under an overpass. Three guys are sitting on his vehicle, basically waiting for him, and they're going to jump him. He's armed. He doesn't wait till they put their hands on him and shoot him. He pulls out his gun and says, guys, you need to clear the hell out of here. And they, that was a perfect example of when that was possible. But I think one thing you have to realize is the second you do that, they could be armed. And you have to, if, if somebody goes for a gun, you're in a shooting situation at that point. You've been threatened. You've tried to clear the situation. They won't leave. They clearly mean you harm. And you have to be judicious about when you reveal anything, specifically that you have a weapon. Because it also gives the attacker the ability to say, well, I had to kill him, I had to shoot him, I had to stab him, I had to beat him with a, with a bat, I had to put his head through a wall. He had a knife, he had a gun, he had a club, he had a hammer, whatever, he had a tomahawk, right? So just keep that in mind and keep the real master of weapons knows that the weapon is meant to be felt, never seen. Okay? That's, that's the truth. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Rod Woods. The other day on your show, you were talking about knife sharpening, and you said if anybody had tried anything that they thought was working, you might be interested in checking it out. I just got in a work sharp today, one of the cheaper models. It was, like, off Amazon, and I did use T-Spaz, but I hadn't. And I got it here for, like, right at 75 bucks. And I just went through my whole kitchen with that little work sharp. I think it's pretty sweet for what it is. Um, you might not, you might check it out, or maybe you already have, but you said if anybody had used anything that they thought was decent, I'd already ordered it before your show even came out. That's it. Talk to you later. Thanks for your show, man. Later. Okay, I'm an open-minded guy, but I'm going to admit, when I heard, well, work sharp, okay, well, great, yeah. And I, never, and I Google it, and I looked at it, and I'm expecting to see yet another one of these uh, dual-wheeled, grinding, stone, evil things that destroy blades. And what I see is not what I expect. A somewhat triangular-shaped tool with a handle on it, plugs in electric, with a small belt that goes around it with angle uh, guides that give you different choices for the angles that you put on the blade. And those belts um, come in different uh uh, grits, and what it actually looks like is a miniature version of what professional bladesmiths use to sharpen knives. And at like seventy-five bucks, and I think the one I got was one hundred and twenty bucks. The one that's a little bit better has like the instead of these different pieces that kind of snap onto it with different ed, uh, angles. It just basically has a thing that turns. And I figured if I'm going to try it out, so I ordered it today. 
I'm not endorsing it yet because I haven't used it. And I don't endorse things that I haven't used. And I don't believe, you know, Amazon reviews good or bad until I have some practical experience. But I often look at something and go, I think this will work because of prior experience with other things. This is exactly what comes down to with this. When you use a belt sharpener on a knife, one of the big things that you're, you're doing is you're using a something that, that allows you to basically pull the metal versus push the metal. And that works a lot better. And you are honing rather than really removing a lot of metal. And if you uh, come to my workshop, you'll see Patrick uh, Rohrman use a much larger piece of equipment, but basically with the same type of technology. Um, holding the angle in a perfect angle and moving the blade across this moving belt. So I have a real hope that this maybe won't be quite as good as a you know $500, $800 professional belt sharpener system, but I think it might be good enough for the average person to keep their knives sharp without damaging them. And uh, I'll let you know. But this is kind of my commitment to you guys with what I do with the Amazon product of the day. When I see a new product like that, I'm not just going to go out and throw it up on my blog and go, look at this, it's great, why don't you go out and buy it? I will spend my own money on any product that I would ever suggest that you spend your own money on, or I wouldn't suggest you spend your money on it. That's that's always been the case. And uh, this, again, just by the, the technology that's being used, is there a flaw here? I think there is, but I think it's one you can live with. When I first met Patrick Roorman, and he was showing me how to sharpen with water stones, which, which I know how to do, he was doing something I've never done. And that is, he was pulling the blade backwards to sharpen it rather than kind of pushing the blade forward, as you can imagine, like you might be actually cutting into the stone, but you're really not. You're holding that edge. He was pulling it backwards, and then he would pull it backwards the other way. And it was, it was a reverse of what I'd been taught. And I asked him why, and he said, if you just think about the edge of a knife, if you're pulling the steel, as you're moving the steel toward the edge, you're able to get a, a better edge than if you're pushing back against it. Well, the way this thing works, unless it's got a reversible motor, and I'm not sure I didn't check that much because it looked good enough to give it the, you know, the what for checkout, um, unless it's got a reversible motor, well, then on one side, you're using the belt in a downward Patrick-approved way, and the other side, you would actually be moving the steel up. I'm sure Patrick would say that's a terrible thing. Um, but I, I think, again, it could be lived with. And I'm also wondering if it would be as simple as, instead of going from side to side, just turning it around and pulling it in the opposite direction so you're still getting that same motion. Because to me, and when you, when you do belt, belt sharpening with any of the larger tools, you're, that's what you're always doing is the belt's pulling away from the knife, which is also a lot safer than having something that could shove the knife back into you. And I will say this, anytime you're using a belt sharpener, a, a grinder, anything, be very careful. Um, there's a, a an email list that I used to be on, a Yahoo email list on uh, single shot rifles, where one of the guys has been on there forever. We heard through the grapevine, so to speak, that he had he passed away. And it took a few days to find out what had happened. And this was a very experienced kind of machinist type guy 
that was just being sloppy because of his experience, and he was working on some piece of metal that kind of flew out of his hands on a grinder and hit him in the throat and killed him. So use caution with any tool. I don't think there's any risk of that with this tool, and that's another reason I like it for kind of, let's call it the layman sharpener. But I have high hopes for it because it would be nice to be able to, uh, you know, easily and quickly put kind of a razor edge back on, on my knives without having to sit there for hours playing around with something. Let's go ahead and uh, take another one. Hi, Mr. Spirico. This, my name is Tim, and I live in the Animal Valley in California. Um, I'm a new listener, and I've heard you mention uh, aquaponics a couple of times, and it's something that my wife and I are very interested in. Um, if you have any kind of a website or books or something that you could recommend for beginners getting started in this, I'd really appreciate it. Thanks. Well, one place you could start is right here at the Survival Podcast. Uh, we've done quite a few episodes in aquaponics. Uh, most recently was almost a year ago, September 9th, uh, 2015, episode 1640. We did a show called Aquaponics for High-Density Food Production. Uh, episode 1355 was Aquaponics with Tom Smith. Uh, 1271 was Dr. Nate's story on vertical farming and aquaponics. Episode 1076 was Mark Kirkwood on airwells and aquaponics. And more. Episode 992 was Tanya Sawyer on aquaponics at the individual, community, and commercial level. Uh, episode 622 was our actual first uh, episode with Tanya Sawyer of Colorado Aquaponics. And her website, Colorado Aquaponics, would be a great website to check out. Episode 510, going all the way back to 2010, we did a show called Building Renewable Protein Sources via Aquaponics. Those would all be great places to start. Probably the best forum on the Internet to check out and hook up with people actually doing it and learn the resources they would recommend is the forum for BackyardAquaponics.com, which is at BackyardAquaponics.com slash forum. So I'll have links to all of that in today's show notes. I'm just going to have a link to the aquaponics search function uh, on, on the TSP. So you'll see some articles and stuff in there that mention it, but you'll find all those uh, uh episodes where you can actually listen to experts on the subject to help you learn more, and a link to the Backyard Aquaponics Forum. Um, the other person that I might suggest you check out is a gentleman named Murray Hallam. Uh, Murray Hallam has a website. You have to register your email, but he has a whole bunch of free videos. They are kind of salesy, but he does have some DVDs, Murray Hallam's DVDs, uh, available from uh, the PRI, the Permaculture Research Institute, where you can get Jeff Lawton's DVDs. Those are very good. I have all of them myself, and I've watched them and learned quite a bit. Um, but most of what you want to learn, you can just learn by watching YouTube videos. Now, here's what where kind of the rubber meets the road. When it comes to an aquaponics system, there is a very critical component that nobody ever talks about. Nobody ever talks about this, but it's the number one thing that prevents people from becoming aquaponics proficientados, right? And that is confidence. They watch videos, they read books, they look at things, but it seems mystical. It seems hard. It seems complicated. It won't work. i got to figure out how to make this bell siphon, or do I do raft? Or just get some IBCs. Get some grow media, get some some beds, and build a small system and give it a shot. That and, and every time you run into a problem, 
use YouTube and forums to solve that one problem until you get to the next problem, et cetera, et cetera. And that's how most people actually become proficient. The other option is see if there's anybody in your area that has a system set up that you can go look at or would be willing to help you. You might also consider if you get one of the seats that are going to be available because I know we'll sell out. We are going to be demoing my new aquaponics system and doing a full class on how it's set up at the October workshop, which will be the last week of October, uh, that Wednesday through Sunday, which set up on Wednesday and go home day on Sunday. But the workshop will actually be Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And we're putting in a pretty sophisticated system. And I'm doing exactly what I said. I found someone locally to become a friend, really in aquaponics. He's doing a lot of the work because he wants to prove out this system so that he can sell it. But, you know, getting someone that already has a system in place that already knows how it works to work with you obviously would be the best thing. I'd say that about bees. I'd say that, you know, find gun mentor, so why not an aquaponics mentor? Um, but there's, trust me, there's a lot of resources out there where you can, you can learn enough to get started and then that kind of lets you figure out, well, how would I make my own system better for my own needs? The other thing I would say, your part of California, if I'm not mistaken, is like southern sun you California, right? So it would be a good idea to think about shade with your system. Uh, my system is going to be in basically the, the tanks themselves where the fish are will be in a greenhouse, a uh, well-ventilated greenhouse that we can put uh, certainly shade cloth on during you know the nine months out of the year that it's summer here, but actually keep water warm during the winter. But the grow beds will all be in my quail aviary tunnels with 60% shade cloth on them. And I've seen a lot of aquaponic systems set up nowhere near as that complicated, but in southern climates with just, you know, basically you build basically a pergola and then you put shade cloth on it and your system sits underneath that. And I've seen for southern systems that it works a lot better that way. Um, I put in some wicking beds last year. They did really good up till about now. And now even though they have plenty of water because they're wicking beds, uh, the plants are getting baked in our sun because the, the half of them that are really get a lot of long sun exposure, uh, which I almost was afraid they wouldn't get enough, it's just too much here. We have 104 today. It's going to be 104 tomorrow. I think you have similar situations. Think about shade. That would be another thing. But, again, the forum to start like connecting with people that I know of that, that seems like it has the most people that are really doing it is Backyard Aquaponics, and they have people from all over the world it's a very, very active forum uh, with a lot of really helpful members. But little thing on forum etiquette. Do not go to a forum and post, I'm a newbie, tell me everything I need to know about aquaponics. I don't think the caller will, but this is for anybody on any subject. Most of these forums have been around for years. There's tons of threads, tons of articles. Use their search function, things like that. And then say, you know, I was looking at this thread and it said to do this, and now I don't understand that. And then the people are like, oh, this guy's trying and they're a lot more likely to help you out than rehash the same thing they've already done 400 times for 400 different newbies. And people get jaded and tend to forget that they were that newbie once too. So forum etiquette like that will go a long way uh, toward helping you get the help that you need from forums. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Jeremy from Southern California again. If you don't mind, I'd like to redo all my question now that I've composed myself a little bit. Anyways, here goes. Hi, Jack. This is Jeremy from Southern California. My question is, what are some prepper skills that would benefit a soon-to-be dad? Or how can I adapt and preps to include my baby? Background. Me, we have, my wife and I have two months of preserved food 
and two months of water, bug out bags, first aid kits handled, as well as guns and ammo. Um, we're saving money and have a bug out location that we're setting up as well. So, Jack, my question again is how can the dad adapt his, his uh, preps in order to become a better prepper to include his new son or daughter? Thanks again for everything you do. You really have impacted our lives and uh, led us on a better path. As an MSB member, that was my way of saying thank you by giving you that money in order to give you a little thank you for what you've done and what you've taught us. Thanks. Have a great day. Well, first on the MSB thing, just let me say thank you very much for supporting me and the work I do. Without people like you, this show could not exist. I mean, this is how this show has been able to run and continue to grow and develop and adapt and bring new content every day, five days a week for eight years. Because of, so, thank you. So, um, on preparedness and skills, let's let's put the skills on the shelf for a second. I'll give you a little bit of what you're asking for, and then I'm going to give you my real answer. So you have a new baby coming into the family. So from a preparedness standpoint, you need to make sure that all of your plans, like if we have to evacuate, you have your, your 72-hour kits and all that. We now create a baby 72-hour kit, which is pretty much a diaper bag. Uh, but we need to think those ways and maybe longer term. Of all the things that are tough to procure, it may be baby things that may be the toughest to procure if you ever have to 86 the AO or anything like that. And for people that don't know what that means, AO means area of operation and 86 means get out. So 86 the AO, get out of the area of operations. Um, I really like they throw stuff out like that sometimes. I get emails like, what the hell does that mean? Uh, Google is your friend. Anyway, so... Um, <laughs> You know, that kind of thing that makes sense is to make sure, and, and, you know, possibly if you live in a hot climate, you might look at something like a small generator and a window unit air conditioner so that, you know, this is nice anyway, but especially with a baby, heat can be downright dangerous. Uh, you know, like I said, it's 104 today. I can only imagine what the temperature of this house would be and how dangerous that would be for an infant. So, I mean, that would be something I would make a priority. Now, as far as skills and stuff to develop, This is where I'm going to tell you something you probably didn't expect, but it's the best advice I can give you. The skills you need to develop as from a preparedness standpoint uh, as a new father are father skills. You need to start thinking about you know, how you're going to develop a relationship with your new child. You need to start thinking about um, you know, putting some money away for that child as they grow up and starting now. And, and kind of, I think, in two baskets. One is like the long-term uh, life establishment fund. And the other one, you know, like babies need a lot of, like, necessities right now. Like, you know, formula or if you're breastfeeding, you've got that. But you got diapers. you got, you know, wet ones and clothing and diaper bags and all that stuff. And so you got to do that. But as they get older, kids tend to want stuff. And I think it's an interesting idea that maybe if you just put away five bucks here and ten bucks there over the years, by the time the kid gets to where they want stuff, you actually have a little fun to draw from to do stuff with your kids. But since you put the money away, you get to decide like how that gets used to develop that relationship. That would be another uh, potential thing. And remember, when I start talking about saving for your kid's future, I use the term life establishment fund. You'll notice I will never say save for, save for your child's college education. I think that's a stupid thing because then you do stupid things like getting 529A plans, which lock the child's money up 
for educational purposes, when your kid might end up being really talented at something you can't even imagine yet and have an opportunity to either study abroad in a non-traditional way or to establish a business or whatever. And so I, I say keep that that savings in a place where the tax man doesn't get to tell you how and when you can use it, all right? But, you know, I think you need to be thinking about what kind of career you're going to build for yourself going forward so that you have time to be with your child. I think you need to be thinking about developing patience. Uh, that's a skill that new fathers can use. Uh, developing tolerance for things that you otherwise would not tolerate. I struggle with this still. There's times when my grandson comes over and he's wired for sound and he's bouncing off the walls and he's loud. And especially having been a father and raised a son from that stage to adulthood and getting to a point where he went out of the house and my house was freaking quiet and now it's not, right? And it's brought me back to remember that I got good at that, but it took some time to develop patience because kids make a lot of noise, Now, babies cry, but when they get a little bit older, they make a lot of noise. They never settle down. They always have questions. Developing patience, developing your ability as a storyteller to sit down and tell stories to your child, whether you're reading them from a book or just telling them from memory. Uh, this is a way to make sure you don't end up with a, with a screenager instead of a teenager, right, that's attached to the screen. Having that, um, developing knowledge of what types of activities are right for different children at different ages so that whether it's a son or a daughter that you can be part of their life all the way through it. I think that's a hell of a lot more important than worrying about, well, what are we going to do to be prepared because now we have a four-year-old if the apocalypse happens or, or something like that. You know, I am fond of the concept of a bug-out location. I am fond of all of these ideas that we talk about all the time from a preparedness standpoint. But when it comes to fatherhood or motherhood, The skill set is in the relationship, and, and that's what to focus on now. Not something over here to, to worry yourself with or to busy yourself with or to occupy your time and resources, but to put the, the time and the resources and the love and devotion into the relationship. That, that's the preparedness for a new father. Um, to seek whatever spiritual guidance does it for you. Whether you're a Christian and you, you pray directly, or you're a, um, I don't know what your faith is, Jewish, Muslim, Buddha, whatever your faith is, to, to seek it out. Or if you're like me, someone that believes in God but not organized religion, you have your own form of spirituality, your own form of meditation to think about the responsibilities. I think even the atheist can find something spiritual in the concept of I've now given life to another being that I'm going to be responsible for in simple contemplation. I think that's a good preparedness uh, standpoint. Um, to face fears like am I going to be able to do this with the answer of yes, I am. I Trust me, I've looked around. There's people that are far too dim, in my opinion, to be reproducing that do a fair job as a parent. Uh, I can tell by the way you speak. You're an intelligent person. You're going to make a fine father. But that doesn't mean that we don't sit around and contemplate the responsibility. And these, I think, are, are better suited than figuring out, you know, I don't know how to uh, to make a breast pump out of a coconut. I I, I think that you know that'd be a, a prepper skill for a father, right? Um, I think that we could we could we we would do better to focus on ourselves as fathers as our preparedness. Uh, let's go ahead and take another one. Hey Jack, this is Matt from 
southwest Wisconsin. My question is, can I take a shot at close range when there are rocks? Details are, uh, this might sound like a joke, but it isn't. I grew up in the city and didn't uh, grow up around guns. But I've gotten to be a pretty decent shot around the farm, shooting uh, sparrows, pigeons, skunks, rabbits, whistle pigs, so forth. The whistle pigs have been a real problem this year, and I was sitting out in my front yard, and I got this uh, decorative garden pond thing with a waterfall and this dirt berm built up. So I'm just sitting there, enjoying the view this evening. And then I got these big uh, pavers out there in front of the pond, too, which are like rocks, say the size of a cantaloupe. Uh, up to maybe a big watermelon. So I'm sitting there, and this damn woodchuck, about the ugliest woodchuck I've ever seen, comes out from behind the pond and out of the long grasses I got lined up there and just sits there staring at me about eight feet away. I could almost reach out and touch him. So I got my 20 gauge and uh, 22 over under, and I got a seven shotgun shell in there, and I'm just about to blast him, and then I realize there are all these pavers around him behind him and in front of him, both sides. And I'm thinking if I miss him and it hits one of those pavers, that shot might come back at me. So my question is, could I have taken that shot? Would it have been better to use the 22? If I did right to not take the shot, how far away would I need to be before it would have been safe to take that shot? Thanks a lot. Bye. Okay, so in the situation you described, I can almost 100% say you made the right decision, right? So if, if anything, you know, and I've had animals lock up on you like that before, start walking backwards until you feel comfortable with the distance. Um, no, I wouldn't say you're better off with a 22 at that distance either. What you have to remember is it's not just you that you have to worry about the safety of, that deflected rounds go all kinds of places. And, you know... The, the two things you had there, a shotgun shell with, with lead pellets and a twenty two with a soft lead bullet, those things tend to deform and, and slow down in speed pretty quickly. But eight feet, they can do damage at eight feet, that's for sure. So how far is too close? And, and it would, I can't really say because every situation is different. The hard surfaces that you might be concerned with are different. The angle of the shot's different. What's surrounding you is different. What's behind uh, the, the offending structure is different. What's to the left and right of it's different. This is where there's a certain amount of common sense and human brain computation that has to go into every situation. And what I would say is this. If you have a shot at anything other than a life-and-death situation where it's better off taking the shot than not, Right, because if you don't, somebody is going to die. Right, if it's a deer, it's a it's a you know a, a, a groundhog, which it's a whistle pig. If you're not familiar with that term, that's what you're talking about as a, a groundhog. Um, you know, the, the world's not going to end if you don't take the shot. If your computer in your head says this seems dangerous, don't do it. Don't do it. Now. The truth is, shotgun pellets hitting a rock pretty much mash flat out and kind of go sideways. They generally don't bounce straight back, but they can. 
Um, if you look at, if, for instance, cowboy action shooting done with soft lead and metal targets, it's done at pretty close ranges, but those are metal targets. They're a flat surface. They're impacted a specific way where a rock is this kind of curvy thing that can cause a lot of different collateral damages to occur. So I wouldn't take an eight-foot shot with large rocks behind it with any firearm. Um, and I wouldn't just say if you missed because, you know, with the .22 you can penetrate through and then it comes out the back and God knows what happens then. And with a shotgun, you've got a pretty dense shot pattern. that You could still have some of your pellets miss uh, or with that dense a shot pattern at that range penetrate through and possibly, but that, it probably would have been okay with the shotgun. I still wouldn't have done it. I still wouldn't have done it. And the fact that you felt like you shouldn't have done it, that's that's the point where there's no way I'd second-guess that decision. right? I would I would say that if that type of situation repeated itself, what you want to do is start putting distance between yourself and the target with an understanding I might spook the animal, I might miss it, I might have to wait for another opportunity, but uh, let that computer work. And I, I think we need to do certain exercises with the computer in our minds. And, and you start to realize how powerful that computer is. Like one of the things I always do, I do it instinctively, but I've realized a lot of people don't. And that is when I am on like a two lane road and I see a, a vehicle coming towards me from a long distance in my head, I pick the point at which I think we will pass each other. And I do that over and I do that over and over and over and over and over again. And if I adjust speed or they adjust speed, I readjust that point in my mind. And even from very far distances, I'm usually within inches, I think, of where those two, the two vehicles are going to cross. And I really believe that that particular mental exercise saved my life when Dorothy and I had a wreck about a year ago where we lost the blue truck. Because it was an instantaneous decision. When we went back to that situation, and they say time slows down in these situations because your mind is moving at a higher rate of speed and you're responding at a higher rate of speed, I know that happened because I think about all the decisions, all the thoughts, all the things I did to minimize that impact, and I thought in my head, because you're all hyped up at the time, you're, you know, is she okay? And it was a bad wreck, even though we weren't really hurt. It was, it was bad enough the truck was totaled. It was bad enough his truck was totaled. Um, blew the, the, the front wheel off my truck. Uh, we were hurt, we just weren't really injured. I mean, hurt in, you know, the seatbelt on the chest, and my wife was crying, so you kind of let that slip. And I thought that was about, that must have been about a second and a half, two seconds from the time I saw him till we hit. We went back, and we both agreed, like, okay, this is where we could see the guy coming, and this is where we hit him. So we drove through there at about 40 miles an hour, which is the speed I was traveling at. Now, remember, he was traveling the other way at a high rate of speed, And when we, we came past that point, I started counting in my head out loud, or out loud, and she's sitting next to me, and I went, one, one. That's how long it was. That was the distance we traveled, about a quarter of a second. And that instantaneous computer in your head goes into action, and the more times it's seen something, the quicker it can respond, and the quicker it can tell your body what to do. And that happened there. And I believe that's the case with, you know, shooting, especially when you start looking at windage and distance and holdover and things with, you know, especially bows and arrows. Um, 
that that's actually a more accurate thing than any sight system. And it's also a great warning system. And when, when, when you're thinking about doing something and that little voice in your head says, don't do it, listen to that little voice. Don't listen to the Eddie Haskell voice that says, it's okay, go ahead, it'll be fine. Right? I'm dating myself there, Eddie Haskell. Anyway, let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack, got a question about getting into bird hunting when you don't have a bird dog. Uh, details. I did some bird hunting years ago as a teenager, uh, unlicensed as a, a youngster on private land, and I'd like to get back into it. I have the gun, I don't have the dog, and obviously not much experience. Um, wondering what your advice would be to start up land bird hunting. I have access to county lands that uh, do allow hunting, and there is enough game there that I could take it, but I don't have a dog, and I'm wondering if that's still something I could do. Also, I know there's some differences in how birds are labeled. Uh, we have mostly partridge and pheasant. That's in Ontario, but I'm not sure if partridge and pheasant are considered the same thing in the U.S. where you are. So if you could uh, maybe enlighten on differences in upland game and how to take it without a bird dog, if it's possible. Uh, thanks, and hope to hear from you. Okay, well, um, I have quite a bit of experience hunting uh, ringneck pheasant. I have the sum total of zero experience hunting uh, partridge, uh, though I'm not sure what you mean by partridge. I do think that there, you know, are these imported partridge that are, uh, you know, like hunted like kind of alongside pheasants, and then I do think there's parts of the country where what people call a partridge, we call a grouse. And I'm going to assume that you mean grouse when you say partridge. If you don't, maybe this will help you anyway. So let's start out with pheasants. Pheasants are um, your, your more farmland uh, game birds. And you generally then hunt them in fields, a lot of times in standing corn or corn stubble or grain fields that have been recently harvested and things like that. They are a fantastic bird to hunt with a dog. But let's talk about what the dog does, because when you understand what the dog does, then you know what you have to compensate for. So most people think, well, the dog finds the bird. Okay, that's true to a point. But if you're walking through the field, you're going to disturb the bird as well. So the dog may help you find birds you wouldn't find otherwise. That's, that's absolutely the case, because he's got the nose and you don't. But assuming that you're going to disturb a bird, one thing the dog does is the dog helps to control the bird. Pheasants run. I mean, they would rather run than fly, especially if they've ever been shot at before and maybe took one pellet that didn't kill them. They know how the game works. Uh, and even ones that haven't been shot at before tend to kind of figure it out pretty quick one way or another, that if they stay on the ground where you can't see them, they're more likely to stay alive. So a dog a lot of times will, will be able to get out in front of you and get that bird to hold up, and that's when the dog will go on the point. And that means that you can move in at a known distance and then use the dog to flush the bird. So what a lot of times happens when people go out and hunt a bird like a pheasant without a dog is that pheasant takes off and then either doubles back on you and you never see it, okay? Or, very, very common, that bird just hauls ass to the end of the field. It knows how far away you are, knows you're very far away, and then you hear the mad cackling, and the pheasant flies away, and it's 75 yards out and going due away, and now you can't get a shot. There's not 
any way you're going to make that shot on a pheasant. 75 yards is not happening. Uh, they are rather tough birds, too. They take quite a bit of shot in them to put them down well. So one of the best things you can do if you don't have a dog is to hunt with a partner so the two of you kind of work together and kind of create more of a funneling effect and move slowly. That's one way that you can kind of compensate for that fact. Um, the other thing is if you do put a bird up, watch it. Watch where it goes down. Give it some time and follow it up. Generally, they don't go very far from where they land. Okay, and kind of that's the whole thing with pheasants. Now, I've done quite a bit of pheasant hunting, but I've always hunted pheasants with dogs. So I don't have a lot of experience. I shouldn't say always. I've shot a few pheasants without dogs, um, especially when we were living in Pennsylvania. Uh, the, the game department stocked birds near a place that I had been hunting doves. And, yeah, we, we shot a few few birds there without dogs. And that was pretty much what we did is we just went through the field kind of spread out and, you know, kind of pushed and worked the birds up and out. And a lot of times what you can think about is what will make a bird break. And what will make a bird break is if they get to the end of cover and they can't just go into adjacent cover without uh, a significant distance. They don't like to run across the open. So that lets you look at fields and decide, okay, well, if that butts up against a tree line, we don't want to push the field into the tree line because the birds are going to run right into the tree line. We want to push the, from the tree line to an open break. And we want to move really, really slow, and we want to really look, and we want to you know, really kind of advance slowly and listen. Because if you're hunting in the fall, pheasants in the fall, uh, and you're you know, dry corn, corn stubble, dry, you can often hear the birds running, and you can kind of counter them and kind of move them toward that point where they feel like they have to break. The, again, if you push them too hard, what they tend to do is they run way ahead of you and break. Partridge, assuming you mean, because I think if you mean like Hungarian partridge and stuff like that, the imported guys, which pheasants are as well, then you pretty much are going to hunt them like pheasants. If you actually mean grouse, or uh, people also call them ptarmigan, in, I think, in uh, Alaska, now you're moving into the woodlands. In fact, we used to refer to a, uh, a hen pheasant as a country grouse because she was brown, uh, but in the country where the grouse was in the mountains. And um, you, you get up into the mountains with grouse. Grouse, I actually think, are a little bit easier to hunt without a dog than a pheasant. Uh, grouse tend to hold until you step right on them anyway, and then they, they, they take off with a thundering, <coughs> right? And it kind of throws your heart up into your throat, and you got to get your shit together and get us shot off very quickly because they tumble through the timber, and you often don't get anything approaching a clean shot. Like a lot of times with a pheasant, dog or no dog, when that bird goes up, you got a big, long, donkey bird that you know goes up and gives you a nice crossing shot in the open. Uh, they're fast, but it is an open shot. And the number one way people miss with pheasants, that big long tail throws them off and they shoot behind the bird. So you're gonna, you, when you lead a pheasant, you're leading that red head of that, that, that rooster. Where with grouse, it's more of like a pop shot, right? It's that bird's up, you gotta get that shot off now, right? Um, and they'll hold in certain places. And one of the big things you can do is if you have access to area where grouse are, You can walk those areas kind of nonchalantly through the woods and what have you um, pre-season where it doesn't matter that the birds got up. And you'll find there's certain places that they hold and they'll be there 
time at not every time, but time after time after time. That bird or another bird, that's a place they hold up for a reason. In Pennsylvania, we had a lot of stripping holes, old stripping holes from the strip mining days, and a lot of like small depression pockmark ones where they had tested or like a lot of things have been backfilled, but there's a little area here and they like to hide down in those little clumps of um, uh, trees and, and whatnot. And once you kind of knew that was the area, then you can kind of be prepared when you come into those areas. This area is likely to be holding a grouse. Same thing I said. If that bird goes up and you miss it, whatever you saw that bird last, wait about three or four minutes, walk in a straight line. They tend to fly in a straight line, and they usually go no more than 100 yards or, or less, uh, sometimes a couple hundred yards at most, and they land. And they land, and they sit there, and they look in the direction you came from with hatred and concern and distrust and that, that guy, that thing is coming to get me and they watch and then they're a bird so they have a little bird brain and after a little bit of time they kind of look around and everything's quiet and they look down and there's a little tea berry and it looks good so peck, okay that was pretty good I guess the danger's gone they kind of go back to being a bird and kind of look for a place to hole up and figure I'll go back where my preferred holding spot is after the big boogeyman leaves So if you advance on them, they'll tend to hold again. And I've, I've put grouse up, I hate to admit it, five, six, seven times before I've knocked them down. I put it one so many times, and I had the dog with me, but we were just doing what I said, and you could have done it without the dog. Uh, I think the last time, for all I know, as bad as I was shooting that day, the damn thing may have flew into a tree. I may have just freaked it out so many times. It died of a heart attack. But, uh, you know, that's, so now here's your other thing. What dogs do for you is not just help you get the birds up. They help you actually find the bird you knock down. Pheasants are pretty large birds, but a lot of times, if you, like I said, they take some killing. If you put a pheasant down and it's not locked up, it will hit the ground and run. And you need to be on it when that happens. If you see a pheasant and you shoot it and it kind of like, it doesn't just go down, it kind of like brings its wings in a little bit, kind of goes into a glide, and it, it, its, its feet are still hanging down, it's not, it's not falling, a lot of times that bird has been hit. And it's kind of locked itself up, and it's set its wings, and it'll hit the ground. And, I mean, it'll run the second it hits the ground. And it's a lot of times hard. To, the bird is going to look for cover. It's going to hide. It's going to blend in more than you'd think a big, bright, red-headed bird would. So you really got to be on birds. If you, I, I'm really hesitant to take doubles shots on, on birds when I don't have a dog because I need to hit that animal, watch it hit the ground, lock in on it, and get there. You can put it down stone dead, and it can land in a little clump where you think you know where it is, and you're five feet away from it, and you don't see it. So really lock on and get there quick. Grouse, or again, I think this is what I'm thinking of when you say partridge, have a, 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 a sneaky little thing that they do when they're wounded that is, it's, it's kind of crazy, but I've seen them do it more than once. They'll hit the ground, and if there's a lot of leaf litter, They will grab the leaves with their feet. They have two little feet, look like little chicken feet, because they look like a little flying chicken. North America's version is what they are. And they will grab the leaves, and they will lay on their back and basically bury themselves in the leaf, belly up with the leaves held in their, their talons, and not move. And they'll wait you out. And they'll hope you go away, and then they'll try to put their life back together, you know, and worry about a fox next. But they know you're there. They're a smart bird, um, and I've had I had one um, when I was a kid. My dad was down in a little thing, and it came flying up, and I shot it, and it dropped 
straight, right down in front of me. I saw exactly where it hit, but I was kind of like up on a rise, and he was down below where he could get to it first. And I told him where it was, and he walked because he didn't see it. He walked around, he walked around, he walked around. We had no dog with us this day. He's kicking the leaves around. He's looking. And he's like, are you sure you have? I'm like, no, I hit him stone dead. He went right. He never ran. He never moved. He's right there. And he looks down. All of a sudden he goes, oh, I see you, little son of a bitch. And he reaches down and grabs him by the feet. And that's exactly, he saw one, because they have a white, kind of white speckled, brown speckled breast. And he saw one little bit of the feathers sticking out of the leaves. And that's what he was doing. I found them dead that way, where they do it, they lay over like that, and then they, you know, there's enough. They've been hit hard enough, they die, but they die that way. So, really, be on your birds when you don't have a dog, because it's not just about getting the dirt bird up; it's recovering the bird. And I'd say that about doves. I'd say that about anything. We've I've shot doves that like, there it goes down in the field. Pam, you know it's it's dead going. You can see it going down. You know it's dead. It ain't going nowhere. And it, it takes a minute or two to find the damn thing. You know, they don't always land in the open dirt where they're easy to find. So those are my thoughts on that. But get out and do some preseason scouting, right? Figure out where the birds are when it's not critical, and you'll do a lot better dog or no dog in the future. And consider getting a hunting buddy. We call that a hunting dog um, because the rewards are greater than the fact that they'll help you out with your hunting. I believe that a home isn't really complete without a dog in it. Uh, I truly believe that. As I look over at Charlie Daniels sleeping next to me on the floor. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Remember, if you want to call in for a show like today, all you got to do is pick up your phone and dial the numbers 866-65. Think 866-65-T-H-I-N-K. And then, you know, when you, when you call a question in or make a point, do what you heard today. Jack, my question is, da-doom, da-doom, da-doom. Or Jack, my point is, da-doom, da-doom, da-doom. My details are, if you do that, your call will go better. You'll be more likely to get it on the air. Uh, I have a lot of space for calls next week. I mean, if you've been waiting to get on the air, give me a call. I had a couple calls this week that seemed like good calls but had really bad audio problems. So if you called this week and you didn't get on, uh, you might want to recall your call back in. I will admit that there are some days that I listen to a question. I got a fine question. Guy did everything right. I don't feel like talking about that today. I, I, I do screen out calls like that because, well, we're all human beings. So I'll, I'll confess to that. But usually if you... You call back a time or two, even if I don't feel like it, sooner or later I'll, I'll cover that one, and sometimes I think it's because it won't work out well or I won't do a good job or won't be interesting, and some of them work out the best. So never give up when you're uh, harassing me to give you an answer. And if you like this show and you want to support the work that I do, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. I'd say to you this, did you learn enough today for this to be worth 20 cents? If you did, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. It's 50 bucks a year. That's 20 cents an episode, and uh, you can support the show. Just go to survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more. And remember, there's so many discounts there, you're going to get your money back anyway if you're buying the stuff we talk about, from guns to garden, from practical to tactical, and everything in between. And I'm always working hard to try to add more discounters for you to the MSB. I got $200 worth of free ebooks back in there. You get from you know right from the beginning. That's four years' worth alone. I mean, we've really done a good job of making sure it's a good value. Again, the survivalpodcast.com. Click on Members to learn more. And remember, I do take silver. I do take cash, check, money order. Uh, you can do all that by mail. On the same page, when you go to the bottom to sign up, you'll see links to do that. And I even do accept Bitcoin as well. I'd be happy to take Bitcoin, honestly. I've noticed as it continues to be worth more and more money and it costs less and less Bitcoin, people spend less and less of it. Hmm, interesting how that works. 
Then the other way to support the show, just go to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. Uh, it stands for TSP, or the Survival Podcast, Amazon. And uh, on that page, you'll see a group of links. One of them just says, go to Amazon, click here. If you click that link, you do your shopping on Amazon. I mean, I don't care what you're buying. You're going to go to Amazon anyway. Just go to T-SPAS instead. Do your shopping on Amazon. Don't look at anything on my website if you don't want to, and you support this show because we get credit for your sales. So if you want to support this show and you don't want to spend a dime extra, just do your Amazon shopping through tspaz.com, and you can support us. Um, but when you get there, you'll also see a link to see all of the reviews that we've ever done for Amazon, and I have a different product every day that I bring out for you through tspaz.com. Today is actually a twofer. It's the two yeasts that I use mixed together when I make meat. They are Cuvée. These are both made by Red Star. Okay, Red Star Cuvée. And the other one is Red Star Pasteur Blanc. Now, I'll tell you what. This one's worth looking at if you're going to be making meat out of this stuff, just so you learn what to look for if you want to try that yeast combination. I use a pack of each in every batch of meat that I make. I use a single packet of each when I make a gallon. I use a single packet of each if I happen to make five gallons of scale-up uh, batch. Yes, it's more than you need, but... When you make a one-gallon batch with that, it gets going fast, it ferments quick, it attenuates well, it clears out well, it finishes in 30 to 45 days. It is awesome. And I don't know why that combination works, I just know that it does. But this is what you need to know. If you go to Amazon to buy Pasteur Blanc, you will see that some of the sellers on there are doing a naughty, naughty thing. They're calling something something that it ain't. They're calling what they're selling Pasteur Blanc Champagne. There is no such thing. Um, Red Star uh, does not make a yeast called Pasteur Blanc Champagne. Now, technically, Blanc means white, and Pasteur Champagne is a white champagne yeast, but that's not what it's called. This will screw you up because you'll see, it. oh, look, that one's a dollar less for a 10-pack. And you'll buy the Cuvée and the Pasteur Blanc Champagne. But what you're actually going to get is Pasteur Champagne. It's a fine yeast. It does an okay job. It's not the same thing, though. And it doesn't have the little magic when you put the two together that makes it go and really do the yeast fast, right? And you make that mead uh, a quick, fast-finishing mead and really attenuate to this wonderful dryness where even at three pounds to the gallon with a little residual sweetness, it's not cloying. It's not like commercial mead. And I think most commercial mead sucks. That's why I make my own. Um, so you want that. So you want to look out for that. And if you read my article I put out today, you won't get hosed by those nasty little tricky sellers that I think have figured out that I got a whole bunch of you guys buying Pastor Blanc. So they've just called what they're selling Blanc, even though Blanc, you know, it's not, it's not cool, man. It's not cool. Make sure that when you look at the picture, the package itself says Pastor Blanc. Here's the other thing. The Blanc is in like this yellow, like kind of like dark mustard yellow packet, and then the, the, the champagne is in like this light yellow mustard packet. They look almost the same. So you really got to pay attention. See what it says on the packet, in the picture, Pastor Blanc. No usage of the word champagne. You have been warned, and I have given you my one of my major, major secrets developed this year in my year of mead. Remember, I'm doing a year of mead this year. I was doing meads of the week on uh, YouTube, but I just can't keep up with it. But I'm making lots of meads. I've got, oh, five of them going in front of me right now. What do I got? I got going uh, an apple. Uh, what's in that apple? I don't remember. I got an apple mead with some other stuff in it. I, if I turned it around, I could read it. 
don't remember what I did with that. I've got a uh, prickly pear cactus made with mesquite honey and prickly pear cactus juice. I've got a blueberry uh, mead going, and I've got an elderberry mead going. And I just made, what did I just make? Oh, I made an, an elderberry and Asian pear mead. That's the latest one that's gone in. So I will be publishing a book sometime early next year called A Year of Mead on all these different small batches and all the things that I've learned, all the little tricky-dicky things I've figured out. And there's been some cool ones, but none have been cooler than the, the two yeasts together, which everybody... In the, you know, the mead making forums and Facebook groups. You're stupid. You're an idiot. You don't do that. One yeast is going to outcompete the other. Nah. Okay, whatever. I just know that it works. I, and it, it does. And everybody that's tried my meads like, holy crap, how do you do that? Here's how you do that. Well, that doesn't work. Then don't do it and keep drinking your crap. That's all I can say. Anyway. TSPAZ.com, TSPAZ.com to do your Amazon shopping. And if you're a mead maker, give the uh, Cuvée Blanc blend a try. It will blow you away, especially if you add three flowers blend to it. But I'm not going to talk about that today. All right. Um, everything else done. Let's, uh, let's sign off today with a song. I'm not going to say anything about the song. I'm not going to tell you what it's called. I'm just going to tell you that sometimes it's good not to be so serious about ourselves and just have some fun. That's what this song is. It's a song to not be serious about yourself and have some fun with. And it takes kind of a little plucky punch at actually a tension between a lot of guys that are kind of outdoor types and their wives. And while I don't think I would ever do what's in this song, I understand the humor in it. I hope you do, too. And uh, don't worry, it's nothing bad. Don't think that. It's nothing bad. But have a great Thursday afternoon. We will be here tomorrow with the Expert Council Show and wrapping the week up and sending you into your week. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Well, I love her But I love the fish I spend all day out on this lake And hell is all I catch But today she met me at the door Said I would have to choose If I hit that fishing hole today She'd be packing all her things And she'd be gone by noon Well I'm gonna miss her I get home Right now I'm on this lake shore And I'm sitting in the sun I'm sure it'll hit me When I walk through that door tonight Yeah, I'm gonna miss her I'll be there I've got a bite on I hurry, I could beg her to stay. That water's right and the weather's perfect. No telling what I might.
Bye. 